look and consider the fact that he came to establish his kingdom. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we gather together this morning, remind us that we are not looking at a marginal issue. Um, We are looking at your very kingdom, which is central to all of Scripture. And help us to remember, as Jesus told us, that we are to seek first and foremost your kingdom and your righteousness. So help us to understand the importance of the kingdom and our place in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When the Son of God left the glory of heaven and came to earth, taking upon himself flesh and blood, his impact, his arrival, literally split world history into two distinct halves. Even unbelievers acknowledge this division in history when they use the terms B.C., which means before Christ, and the term A.D., which is medieval Latin for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So every time somebody writes out a check, for example, um, they are saying, whether they realize it or not, that we are living in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ 2014. Now, as you may have guessed, um, there is a growing discomfort with these overtly Christian designations. So in recent years, some scholars have said that we should substitute B.C. and A.D. with C.E. and B.C.E. Um, C.E. stands for, according to Wikipedia, uh, Christian Current or Common Era, and B.C.E. stands for Before the Christian Current or Common Era. Now, I am more than happy to use the designation CE or BCE. In fact, uh, these designations may even be an improvement from BC and AD, so long as we understand them to mean, as one pastor suggested, Christ's empire and before Christ's empire. (laughs) So these designations may actually help clarify that Jesus came from heaven to earth 
in order to establish his empire upon the earth, and it is now here. Now, before we move on and talk about the coming of this great kingdom, uh, let me anticipate some reasonable objections that you may have at this point. And I want to address them right up front so they don't distract you from the rest of the message. You may be thinking, you know, as I survey the cultural landscape, I see riots in the streets. I see looting. I see businesses being burned to the ground. I see that racism is alive and well, and it's ugly. I see that those who are in authority are abusing their authority. I see that marriage is being redefined in such a way that it doesn't resemble anything like God established it in Genesis chapter 2. I see that what used to be illegal drugs is now being legalized by our government because it seems that they want to have their hand in the financial element of it. And of course, we could go on and on. We could talk about the corruption of the government, right? And we know about that in Illinois. A number of years ago, I was taking a, a class at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and they were talking about uh, how corrupt their government down there was. And I said, I got all you guys beat. I said, I'm from Illinois. And that was in the midst of the Rod Blagojevich uh, scandal, and he was getting ready to go off to jail. And they said, do all of your governors end up going to jail? I said, not all of them. <laughs> It's most of them. Now, you could be looking at all these different items and be thinking, are these really signs that Jesus Christ is seated on the throne at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations? And my short answer is yes. And I'll give you my long answer later. But for now, just put that aside. We'll come back to it. But we need to ask this question. What does the Bible say about the kingdom of God? Because after all, we're called to live by faith, not by sight, right? What does the Bible have to say? And if we're not careful, we can misinterpret what's going on in the world. I smile every time I read through the book of Genesis and I come to Genesis 42:36. In that passage, Jacob's brothers have just returned from Egypt. They met Joseph, although they didn't know it was Joseph. They thought it was the second in command. And they had to leave Simeon behind as a ransom, and they had to come back with Benjamin. And the brothers relay this to their father, Jacob, and he says, I'm bereaved of Joseph, now I'm bereaved of Simeon, and I'll be bereaved of Benjamin. Everything is against me. And I smile because I want to say, Jacob, just hang on. Everything is not against you. In fact, everything is about to turn around. You don't understand what you're looking at. We're to live by faith, not by sight. Now, perhaps the best theme that summarizes all the scriptures is the theme of the kingdom of God. The theme of the kingdom of God. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you the big picture of the Bible. And we're going to go through the Bible very rapidly this morning, so fasten your seatbelt. Um, but let me just summarize the whole Bible if I can for you. Ready? I can do it in three words. You'll all get it. Even the kids will get it. You ready, Zach? Creation. God created the world in six days, and behold, it was all good. And then fall. 
God said, enjoy all of my creation. It's yours. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. But they disobeyed God. They ate from the tree. And as we saw in our catechism questions, instead of being holy and happy, they now became sinful and miserable. And they passed that along to us. So creation, fall, and then redemption. Redemption. And that begins in Genesis 3.15. And then the rest of the Bible, right through the Old Testament, leading into the New Testament, all the way through Revelation, is God bringing about the redemption of His creation. God restoring all things in heaven and on earth to Himself. That's what the Bible is all about. Creation, fall, and then redemption. Let me just show you some of these themes in the Old Testament. And I'm going to run through them very rapidly. Again, this is just a quick overview. If you like, you can just write these down, perhaps look them up later. But this is Genesis 3:15. This is the curse upon the serpent. And the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So theologians refer to this as the proto-evangel, the first gospel. And it's a prophecy that a day is coming when a son is going to be born of a woman. And this son is going to crush the serpent. It's going to crush the devil. So then Cain is born. And Adam and Eve are thinking, I wonder if this is the son. I wonder if this is the Messiah. And he wasn't the Messiah. He turned out to be a murderer. And then they had Abel, and then they had Seth, and then they had other generation after generation, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, wondering when the son will be born. And then we come to Genesis 12, and we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So generation, they're waiting. And then Abraham comes and he says, In you, in your seed, all the families of the earth eventually will be blessed. And then in chapter 15 and 17, we have what we call the Abrahamic covenant where God says it will be God to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And of course, there's Isaac and Jacob. And you know how many sons Jacob had, right? He had 12 sons. You know that because you saw Joseph in the amazing technical dream coat. Right? And there was a prophecy that one of those sons, Judah, out of him would come a ruler. And they waited and they waited, but still the ruler didn't come. And then in 2 Samuel, I'm not going to read it, but in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm pleased with you, and I'm so pleased with you that one of your descendants is going to sit upon your throne. How long? forever. And we call that the Davidic covenant. So we have the promise. One's going to come and destroy the devil and then through Abraham all the families are going to be blessed and then through David there's going to come a king and he's going to sit upon the throne forever. And then we come to Isaiah and we have some other prophecies that 
tell us a little more about who this individual is going to be. And then what we have is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which if you were to press me to the wall, I would say this is probably my favorite Christmas passage. Uh, I have preached on this passage at Christmas more than any other, uh, but I'm going to be brief here. You'll be well aware of it, though. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From what time? From the time that this son is given and this child is born, he's going to establish his kingdom. Now notice, this is no ordinary child. This child is born, but the child that's born is also a son that is given. And notice what he's called. Mighty God, everlasting Father, which hints that this child is God at the same time. seems to be that this is a God-man, and in fact, he is. And then turning ahead to Isaiah 40, we read beginning at verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. Says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, excuse me, is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I hope that sounds very familiar. And then we'll drop down to verse 9. And what is this? prophet going to declare, the one who prepares the way for the Lord. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news or gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not to say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Now, this is what I want you to see here. A prophet's going to come. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. God is saying, I myself am going to come to my people and I am going to rule in their midst. And the Israelites read that and they scratched their head and they said, that's really odd. I wonder how that's going to take place. Now turn to the last book of the Old Testament if you want to follow along. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. This is how the Old Testament closes. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is quoting Isaiah. 
So even in the Old Testament, prophets could quote one another. And Malachi quotes Isaiah, and he's saying the prophet is going to come. He's going to prepare the way. And God himself is going to surprise you. God himself is going to appear in his temple. And then turn to the last chapter of the Old Testament. The last two verses. Behold. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then the Old Testament closes. If you're a Jew and you're reading through the Old Testament, you come through the last two verses, you're like, man. Talk about a cliffhanger. I mean, you're, you're, you're on the edge of your seat. It's like watching a television program all season long and it builds and it builds and it builds and it comes to the end and they just, they leave you hanging and you're like, oh man, I can't wait till next season to see what happens. That's what the Israelites are like. They come to the, the end of their Old Testament. I, I think they're looking for another book. I mean, they're just left hanging. They're waiting for God to come and rule. They're waiting for the descendants of Abraham and David. They're waiting for this prophet to come. They're just left hanging. Now think about what they're waiting for. Let's just summarize real quickly. They're waiting for the seed of the woman to come and destroy the serpent. They're waiting for the descendants of Abraham to come so that all the nations, all the families on the earth can be blessed. They're waiting for the descendants of David to come so that they will have a king ruling over them. And they're left wondering how this prophet can come, how this king can come, and how God can come at the same time. They surely could not put that together. So they wait. And they wait and they wait. And they wait some more. And they wait some more. Say, how long were they waiting? They waited about 400 years. And then Matthew 1.1, the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now stop right there. Book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ. We use the term Jesus Christ all the time, right? We're Christians. We talk about Jesus Christ, or we talk about Christ Jesus, or we talk about the Christ. What does Christ mean? What does Christ mean? It's not his surname. Okay, well, his first name was Jesus, and his last name was Christ. It's not a name, it's a title. Then we have to ask the question, well, what is it a title for? Literally, it means anointed one. It was the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. It means anointed one. So then we have to ask this question, well, who in the Old Testament was anointed? The prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed. But more often than not, the anointed one referred to the king. And your devotional this morning is on Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 talks about how they rebel against the Lord and His anointed, but then God places His anointed, His King, on the throne. So a very good paraphrase of Matthew 1.1 is this. The book of the genealogy of King Jesus. And the Israelites read that and they go, wait a, wait a second, after all these years... Could it be 
that the king has come. Now, if this is going to be the right king, he has to come from the line of Abraham and he has to come from the line of David. Which is why Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of King Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away, if you're a Jew, you're thinking the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. You're thinking, oh boy, this could be quite exciting. And then Matthew lays out this long list of genealogy. And if you read through your Bible every year and you come to the genealogy, maybe you do what I do when I come to the genealogies. I just go, and I just kind of slur all the names together and I just, I just quickly work through it. But here's the quick summary. I'm not going to read through the whole list and slaughter all these names. But we have three sets of genealogies. 14 generations each. And then when we get to the end, after having begun with Abraham, we read in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or King. 17, summarizing. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Notice the emphasis upon Christ. The Christ, the anointed one, the king. Matthew is making it very clear that after all these centuries, even millennia, the king has finally arrived. Now I'll turn ahead a little bit to Matthew 1.21. The angel Gabriel talks to Mary. And we read in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. The name is very important. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yahshua, means the Lord saves. And then in 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. I grew up and went to Emmanuel Lutheran Church. Emmanuel is a great name. It means God with us. So right away we're told that he's called Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. And he is also called Emmanuel because in this child we have God with us bringing together God and man at the same time in Jesus. And then we come to chapter 2 of Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Perhaps Herod understood better than we understand that with the coming of this king, the kingdoms of this world were going to be transformed. And it's quite ironic that Matthew, writing to Jews, says that it is Gentiles who have come to worship the Jewish king. 
So the Gentiles worship the king and the Jews are oblivious to right in their own midst, right in their own town, Bethlehem, their king has been born. And they're coming to this king to worship him. And this is what we read in Matthew 2, beginning at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We just sang about that a little while ago. They offered these great gifts to the king as they worshipped him. So the king has come. The king has been born. Some are worshiping him. Some are trying to destroy him, which Herod tries to do a little later. It doesn't work, but quickly moving along. Chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was his message? Repent. Repent. And why should the people repent? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? At hand. It means right here. At hand. Right here in front of you. John the Baptist saying the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is right here. You need to repent. And why repent? Because that's how you enter into the kingdom. And then Matthew clarifies. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it's talking about John the Baptist. And then verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now why do we need to know that? I mean, that'd be like saying, you know, well, the pastor wears jeans, and last night for dinner he had pizza. And I mean, why do we need to know his wardrobe and what he eats? And by the way, does his wardrobe or his diet sound familiar? Who dressed like this in the Old Testament? Anybody know? I'd be really impressed. Elijah. Elijah. You can look it up later when you get home. This is how Elijah dressed, and this is what... Elijah 8, and you say, why is that significant? Turn to Matthew 11. Tell you why that's significant. It's not because I was looking for filler for the sermon. (laughs) Matthew 11, beginning at verse 11, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. He is the Elijah who was to come. In other words, remember what Malachi said? Malachi said, 
Isaiah said, one's going to come, prepare the way of the Lord. And then the next chapter, he said, Elijah's going to come and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus says, the one prophesied in Isaiah and the one spoken of as Elijah is John the Baptist. Don't look for literal Elijah. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come, which is why we have that interesting detail about his wardrobe and his diet, because it resembles Elijah. So John the Baptist comes, preparing the way of the Lord, telling people that he's coming, telling people that the kingdom is coming. And then what do we have taking place in Matthew 4? Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We have Jesus going toe-to-toe with the devil because he has come to defeat the devil. He has come to dethrone the devil so that Jesus can establish his kingdom. So we have Jesus going toe-to-toe with the devil. And of course, I hope you know that the ultimate defeat of the devil took place where? On the cross, exactly. On the cross, the devil was defeated, dethroned, and disarmed, as Paul says in Colossians, so that the kingdom could go forth. That's very important. So John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ, says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then John the Baptist is thrown in jail. And then Jesus begins his ministry, and he doesn't just begin anywhere. According to Matthew 4.15, he begins in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali because that's where Isaiah in chapter 9 said the ministry was going to begin. And then Jesus begins his ministry with these words. Tell me if they sound familiar. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom is at hand. He's in prison. His ministry comes to an end. Jesus says, that's great. You've prepared the way for me. Now I'll take over from here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what is Jesus doing? Bringing in the kingdom. And what is his whole ministry about? Bringing in the kingdom. Why is he casting out demons? Why is he healing the sick? Why is he feeding people because these are all signs of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. He is undoing the effects of the curse. In Matthew 12, verse 22, there's a demon oppressed man. He was blind. He was mute. They brought him to him. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw In verse 23, we read that all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for this whole time? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. No, no, no. He's doing it by the power of Satan himself, in other words. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Come on, let's reason. Let's think about this. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God 
and it was that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus not only announces the kingdom, he demonstrates that the kingdom, in fact, is in their midst by driving out Satan so that the captives can be set free, so that the captives can be healed. That's the inbreaking of the kingdom. And of course, the climax is Jesus' death on the cross. And many secular scholars look at that and they think, oh, he was doing so well and then his plans came to nothing. Albert Schweitzer said it was like he was going forth and then he was ground under like a vehicle going over him and it all came to nothing. But we know it's the exact opposite. The cross wasn't defeat for Jesus. It was victory over sin, death, and the devil. And then three days later, he arose from the dead, which shows that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And then 40 days hence, he ascended into heaven where right now he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the nations. Because right now, at this very moment, He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Now let's come back to that question we said earlier. Well, if all this is true, then how can it be that there's riots and looting and racism and abuse of authority and immorality from Coast to coast. How can that be? It looks as though Jesus is not in control. It looks as though he's not ruling and reigning. It looks as though people are doing whatever they want. Au contraire. It's not what's happening. Romans 1. This is very important. Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is, notice the present tense, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is atheists. They're not really atheists. You know what they are? They're people who know the truth, but they want to live however they want, so they suppress the truth so that they can live however they want. And then Paul says, For what can be known about God? It's plain to them. In other words, Paul, Paul saying it's it's obvious. Why is it obvious, Paul? Because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. It's obvious there, there's a God. Just to look around the sun, the moon, and the stars didn't get there by itself. God put it there, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, regardless of what they say, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So what did God do? God gave them over. Three times. As a result of that, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. What is that? That's the wrath of God. That's the judgment of God. Now, this is what I want you to notice. What specifically is the wrath of God? How did the wrath of God manifest itself? Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their flesh to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. According to Romans 1, the judgment of God is sin. It's sin. So when you look out over a culture and you say, morality is growing, people are giving in to their sin more and more and more. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand, is bringing judgment upon His people. That's what sin is. Sin is the judgment of God. Which means that when we see sin running rampant in a culture, we need to realize that we're being judged by King Jesus. His wrath is coming upon Him. Therefore, we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness so that once again He can bless us as a nation. And let's remember that we're all a part of this. When Nehemiah looked at the destruction upon Jerusalem, he said, forgive us the sins that we and our fathers have committed. So when we see what's going on in the world, let's not say, oh, those bad guys out there. Look at what they're doing. We need to say, Lord, please forgive us as a people. We are responsible, not only for our own sins, but also for the sins of our fathers. And I know because we're such individualistic, we have have a hard time thinking about that. But we are Americans, we are a church, and we are also part of a country. We're we're in this together. And we we need to cry out to God. You know, I I was kidding Michelle the other day, but but I was only half joking. I said, you know what you were seeing when you were watching protests in the streets? You were seeing a giant prayer meeting. You were seeing a prayer meeting. Let let me explain. This is what R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote. He said, He said, Hundreds of years ago, a great epidemic passed over this land. Thousands died of influenza, and the nation responded in prayer to the living God. Twenty years ago, a new epidemic began to spread in America. Once again, Americans prayed. The difference this time is that they bowed towards Washington and asked the state to cure AIDS. That's interesting. So an epidemic comes and the people turn to their God. Where do they turn? They turn to their God. So if our God is in heaven, we turn to Him and we ask Him to turn things around. If our God is in Washington, D.C., then we turn to those in Washington, D.C., 
Now, I'm not saying that they don't have a role, and my purpose here is not to get caught up in politics. My purpose is just to ask, where are we looking to, ultimately, for the blessing on this nation? We need to look to God. And if anybody should understand that the only person who can turn this around is King Jesus, then the church should be interceding on behalf of the nation, saying, Lord, forgive us. How we have sinned for generations. Forgive us. Have mercy upon us again. And what are we to give our lives to as a people? Jesus said it in Matthew 6.33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. And the other things in the context is food, clothing, but I think you could add to the list. You want God to bless you? Then seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And as you do that, all the other blessings that you want will be added to you. But don't inverse the order. Too often we do that. We seek after all the things and we think if I have time left over, then I'll give myself to the kingdom. God says, no, the kingdom comes first. And that wasn't a suggestion by Jesus. That was a command by Jesus. So regardless of what we're doing, don't, don't think this is just for pastors and missionaries. Regardless of what we're doing, we're to be seeking the kingdom, building the kingdom. I don't, I don't care if it's changing diapers, fixing computers, preaching sermons. I, I don't care what it is. In our vocations, we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if we could have that attitude, it would change everything about us. Last week, we, we mentioned that the post-baby boom generation has grown tenfold in depression. The generation born between 1946 and 1964. And according to some, they're growing in depression because instead of living for a cause bigger than themselves, like God's kingdom, the country, or family, they're living for themselves. They're turning their attention inward and they're self-absorbed narcissists. And because they're so focused on themselves, they're miserable. Jesus says we're not to be focused in on ourselves. We're to be outwardly focused and we're to focus on the kingdom. And as we're focused on the kingdom, lo and behold, as a byproduct, we'll actually experience joy and happiness. How are you living? I think basically you can have one of three perspectives. I'll close with this. It's a great story about three Masons who were working and a reporter was watching them and he noticed that they're all doing the same job but they have different attitudes. And the reporter went up to the first Mason and he said, he, he said, what are you doing? He's got a hammer and his chisel and he says, what, what am I doing? I, I'm working nine to five so I can pay the bill. That's, that's what I'm doing. Like, oh, okay. Turn, turns to the next mason and he says, and, and what are you doing? As he's chipping away at the stone. And he says, well, I'm, I'm trying to put this wall together. And he looks at his watch and he says, I'm, I'm going to be here till 5. He says, it's not bad work, but I'll be glad when 5 o'clock arrives and I can go home. And the reporter comes to the third man and he, he's chipping away. And then he stands back and he's kind of observing the look. And then he comes forward and he's whistling and he's kind of, singing a little bit, and he's got a big smile on his face, and he says to the third mason, and, and what are you doing? He says, I'm building a great cathedral for God, stone by stone. It's going to be magnificent when it's done. That's the perspective we need. What are we doing? Doing, doing dirty dishes. I'm building the kingdom building the kingdom. I'm living for the glory of God and I'm praying that He uses every little thing that I can do 
like a seemingly insignificant brick to just build it little by little by little. That's what I'm doing. That's what my life is all about. Building the kingdom. I'm doing all this for the glory of God. And if we could realize that the God who sees is also smiling and he will reward you. That's our place in the kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. And when he inaugurated, he didn't say, now I'm going to establish it across the globe just like that. Boom. No, it's little by little. You say, like what? Well, like a mustard seed. Smallest of all seeds. You plant it, you water it, and you think, wow, it doesn't seem like very much. Just a handful of guys. But you water it, and then it grows, and it grows, and it grows slowly over time. And then eventually it becomes the largest of all plants and the birds come and enjoy its branches and the bees come and enjoy its shape and eventually it covers the whole world. And the great thing is we, we get to be a part of bringing in God's kingdom. We get to be a part of God's program for world history. Let's do our part faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that during this Advent season we can celebrate the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the kingdom. Father, thank you that for those of us who have repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father, for those of us who are in the kingdom, may we live advancing this kingdom, doing our part, so that the kingdom can grow until eventually it becomes like that rock in Daniel, the rock that covers the whole world. And Father, we look forward to that day, just as the prophets look forward to that day, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Christ's